This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bowerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bowerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. Welcome to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility for dancers and other artistic athletes. This is co-host Jennifer Milner, here today with Dr. Linda Bluestein. Before we introduce today's special guest, please remember to subscribe to the Bendy Bodies podcast and leave us a review. This really helps grow the audience and increase awareness about hypermobility and associated disorders. This podcast is for you. Today, we have the great pleasure of speaking with Rebecca Rothstein, an industry leader in Pilates, bone health, and movement education. She's the creator of the medically endorsed Buff Bones system with trained instructors in more than 30 countries. She presents throughout the US and internationally and at conferences in the Pilates industry and beyond, including the International Osteoporosis Foundation Worldwide Conference. She pursued her love of anatomy training in Pilates at the Kane School in New York City under the tutelage of Kelly Kane, where she later joined the teacher training faculty. When she was diagnosed with osteoporosis at age 28, her focus took on a new direction to share insights and options to those with low bone density and exercise professionals caring for them. Her work is in the field of osteoporosis and led Heather Lee Medical Education to invite her to write an evidence-based continuing education paper on osteoporosis and exercise, which later encouraged her to develop the Buff Bones Exercise System for Bone and Joint Health. Rebecca serves as a long-standing ambassador for American Bone Health and worked as a partner of the U.S. Department of Human and Health Services. She's a long-standing visiting instructor at the online studio Pilates Anytime. Rebecca, welcome to Bendy Bodies. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. <laughs> well, we are so excited to have you, right, Linda? Oh, yes. Super excited to <laughs> chat with you. And I should say also at the outset that Rebecca and I are friends for about 15 years, maybe? Um, probably more than that, yes. Um, I was one of Rebecca's Pilates teacher trainers. So I trained Rebecca to be a Pilates teacher. And then we have been fortunate enough to be able to stay friends through the years moving through. And I am so proud of what you have accomplished, Rebecca. So proud. Thank you, Jen. I think it's actually, it's like 18 years now. Oh, thank you. I feel much better. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. It is incredible. So <laughs> Rebecca, you have been a pre-professional dancer. You have hypermobility and you had some serious injuries and were diagnosed at an incredibly early age with osteoporosis. So let's start at the beginning. Um, you're dancing, you've got a wonky body, you get injured. So tell us about that. So the first time that I really realized that there was something going on was I was at Boston Ballet School and I was having a lot of problems with my Achilles. And I went to the company doctor and I started seeing their physical therapist. And then it can just continued onward from there. Same thing uh, at San Francisco Ballet School. And I kept going on and discovering that these ankles were, were causing me a lot of problem. And it was diagnosed as chronic Achilles tendonitis. 
but, and that's why I quit. But mm. then I learned later that it was far more than that. It, and now from what I realize, it really was uh, a very different diagnosis than, that, than what was given. That was really just the symptoms of it. Mm. And it all stems from the, the joint hypermobility <laughs> throughout my body. But I never thought of it that way because I never had amazing extensions. I didn't have these incredible feet. Uh, I just seemed to have pain, <laughs> but right. it didn't seem that I didn't think I was hypermobile. Uh, I just thought that I was had more laxity than the average person. But looking mm -hmm. back, there are so many signs going back even to beyond or prior to that when I was an ice skater, where you see pictures of me at three years old and my ankles are totally collapsing inwards. Oh my gosh with all the others who seem to have straight parallel feet and well-aligned <laughs> structures. Um, so this has been a lifelong thing. It's just, I didn't realize it at the time. So I ended up quitting. I, I got to the point, I guess, where at North Carolina School of the Arts, I was sitting out for most of class and only joining rehearsal essentially uh. so that I could perform. And I was, I, I decided I was about to quit when I was about to, uh, consider this offer that was happening where Fernando Gojones was creating a new company down in Tampa or in Southern Florida. And I thought I would go that route, but then I just realized I'm just in so much pain and this is just, I'm done. So I decided to quit dancing and I, I went to college instead. And then that took me on a very different route where I began working in the sports medicine department of my college, thinking I'd go to physical therapy school. So I still was surrounding myself by injuries. They just weren't my own. And I thought that that would be my path. And then I decided I just needed to get away from the body 100% and never deal with it again. <laughs> it, really last, it lasted a couple of years. Yeah, how'd really that work? <laughs> yeah, worked out really well. Um, my first, I'd say five years after I'd graduated college and I went to, I, I moved to New York. Um, I wasn't working with anything with the body, but I was seeing um, one of the big dance medicine physicians there who dealt with the Joffrey for my injuries. And he started doing injections, prolotherapy, which was extremely excruciatingly painful. But it turns out that was coming from my sacroiliac instability. And so that was part of what was leading down to the discomfort and the pain through my ankles. So that was the first indication to me that there is some sort of relationship where the symptoms are not necessarily the source of the problem. Yeah, that's, that's such a huge thing for you to learn. Um, hopefully some people learn it while they're still dancing, <laughs> um, but not everybody does, you know. Um, but a benefit of the injury process was that it introduced you to Pilates, yes, and started something that has, I think, really um, had an impact on the, the exercise world um, with what you're doing. So you were always a very gifted Pilates teacher, I should know. Um, but I know that the diagnosis at age 28 of osteoporosis, it absolutely reshaped your teaching and your focus. So, um, talk about how you can, how you got that diagnosis, like what, why were people even looking for that and what happened immediately afterwards? Sure. Well, thanks to you actually, Jen, I, uh, my interest in special populations that I'd already had from injuries 
led me to teach the special populations like yourself curriculum. Mm -hmm. I should say this led me to teach the special populations curriculum like yourself at the Kane School. So I was already teaching about osteoporosis. So I had mm -hmm. some knowledge about it. And then I started taking some additional workshops just out of at, at conferences. I was interested in it. And then when I was diagnosed, I was shocked. And the reason I even got a DEXA scan, a bone density scan in the first place, was because one of the workshops that I had attended had pointed out a staggering statistic for me, at least. At the time, the statistic was that 98% uh, that of your bone density is developed by the time you're 18 to 20. The, mm -hmm. the statistic varies a bit, but it's around that, that the majority of your bone density you develop in your, in your teenage years. And when I was dancing, like many dancers, I had stopped menstruating. I had weighed a very, very low amount. I weighed 82 pounds throughout my whole dance career. Granted, I'm only five feet tall, but still, um, I was very small, and I'd only menstruated for one of those teenage years. So I knew from everything that I was learning that I was at a predisposition for osteoporosis. It ran in my family. Both parents had it. And so I decided, let me just get a bone density test to see as a baseline where I am now for once I hit menopause later. And it just came back with very disturbing and shocking results, which were that I already had osteoporosis according to that classification. So I, I got very depressed. <laughs> I got very upset. Mm -hmm. Uh, partly because I still identified as a dancer, or at least you have, you're, you're never going to not be a dancer in your mind, no matter, no matter where your life takes you. And so I identified so wholeheartedly with my body and it had so many ramifications from the idea that I would fracture to the idea that from all that I had learned and studied already, I knew that I was going to have to completely alter my Pilates repertoire and my personal practice because I knew already what was contraindicated of movements for osteoporosis and mm -hmm. ability. So eventually I, I took action after I allowed myself to grieve as, as was needed at the time. I started talking to physical therapists that I knew, reached out to other physicians, and I started just doing my own research and finding out what I could do for myself. I visited an endocrinologist and that gave me a lot of information that I think is critical for people still now that I think gets overlooked by the just simplistic or oversimplified version of a diagnosis. You have it, you have to treat it, and these are the ways you do it. And I think uh -huh. there's a lot of gray area in there that is dismissed, unfortunately. Okay, so you um, you started researching. You got first, you got sad, then you got angry, <laughs> and you started researching, right? Trying to figure out what you were going to do, and you chose to go see nutritionists, endocrinologists. You kind of pieced together your own sort of plan, right? Because as you said, options for treatment right then weren't really they weren't really a lot of that gray area. They were more, as you said, here's what you have, now it's time to treat it. And I, my guess is that what they talked about as your treatment wasn't necessarily what you thought should be the start and end of the conversation. So talk a little bit more about that. So in the medical world, treatment equates to 
medication, certainly in the osteoporosis world. And so the first thing I was told by the treating physician initially was, all right, the bad news is you have osteoporosis. The good news is there's medication that you can take. <laughs> that pretty much sent me into a complete sob story right there. But the more I looked up, okay, well, let me learn about the medications. Well, the medications, certainly at the time, not a single one had been, had been tested on premenopausal women. So I was in childbearing years. What are the ramifications and possible side effects that that could have that had been completely ignored, let alone the more I learned about osteogenesis and bone resorption, the metabolism of how your skeletal system works, it would, the medications, uh, the predominant medications, uh, except for one single medication and the ones that were, had been recommended, all suppress your, your bone turnover. So in other words, what they do is they halt bone breakdown. But it turns out, as I learned through getting blood and urine tests, I wasn't having a problem of bone breakdown. So the mechanism by which these medications would have treated me would not have been logical. They wouldn't have actually treated what was going on. So it turns out I had a vitamin D deficiency, uh, which now everybody talks about. But back mm -hmm. in 2004, you know, sure, certainly in research papers it was discussed, but clinically and definitely mainstream on blogs, well, blogs probably didn't really exist, but <laughs> throughout the internet, <laughs> you didn't hear about vitamin D deficiencies. So I was able to get certain blood markers and also urine tests to identify, well, was there anything else underlying? Was there something going off, going on with my endocrine system, which is very common for people? Okay, mm -hmm. check, that was not it, or X, that was not the case. Were there any, was there celiac disease? Like all these other things that can be second causes of secondary osteoporosis, essentially. Um, but what we did identify, the, the only thing we really identified was that I had a vitamin D deficiency, and that alone, remineralizing my bones, increased my bone density. Mm -hmm. But... But at the same time, I think it's interesting to identify that I also changed my diet and I also sought out the assistance of a, a trainer who is a colleague of a colleague of both ours. Uh, Deb Goodman had put me in touch with Jeff Bell, who became my longtime trainer for from probably what 2005 until I moved away in 2019. So I think there's just the, the interesting part is that there is a number of other factors that have to be identified and ruled out, ruled out on the course to treatment or in the course to an identifying um, uh -huh. plan. And back then, and still I think very frequently, these other factors are not looked at and considered. Uh -huh. I absolutely agree with you. That, that's super interesting. Almost at the exact 2004 sounds like about the same time that I got a diagnosis of osteoporosis. Mm. Um, I was I'm older than you, so I was older than 28 by a fair bit. But um, I literally got a voicemail from my it wasn't even my doctor; it was the nurse. They called. They left me a voicemail. You have osteoporosis. You can choose drug A or drug B, and that is literally all they said. And I had been asking him for years to test my vitamin D level because I was aware of you know, some of the research and things, not necessarily even for bone health, but for mood and pain, because I already had pain at that point, um, and for sleep and stuff like that. So 
it's really fascinating the the parallels. I, I totally agree with you that in I think part of that is because the healthcare system is so dysfunctional and it's all about time and it's quicker to just say you have this, you can do this or this. Done. Mm-hmm. You know? So mm-hmm. And it's true. It's, it's, and it's still, unfortunately, to this day, I find it very myopic. I had gone with my mom to one of her physician appointments probably about four years ago, I would say at this point. And she's, she, would, she, she has osteoporosis. She had been on the bisphosphonate medications, which are the most commonly used to treat osteoporosis. Actually, it's changing now, but I should say not necessarily bisphosphonates, but now anti-resorptive, which is a larger classification of uh, stopping the bone breakdown, essentially. And my mom had said at the time, well, what about exercise? With me there, (laughs) her daughter who specializes in this. And the doctor says to her point blank, exercise won't help. I said, I had to to pull myself back because this is is still to this day very frequently stated, even though there's actually much greater evidence than there was then. And even then there was more evidence than there had been back in 2004 when I started investigating this. But the idea is, okay, you could say that there's limited evidence, but to say that there's no evidence is a complete fallacy. And it's just interesting to see how even that has shifted in recent years, but still I I can share with you some of my challenges with the shortcomings even of, of research and the approach though in the medical world where we have so much of an emphasis on bone density and yet they've identified that there are more fractures that have occurred in osteopenia, which is the precursor to osteoporosis, than actual osteoporosis. So in other words, more fractures occurring with a higher bone density. So that points to some kind of shortcoming mm. in our diagnoses, in our uh, outlook on this condition. Mm-hmm. That is so interesting. And I I see a lot because you have hypermobility. I have hypermobility. Linda has hypermobility. We all, everybody's hypermobile, right? To all different degrees. Um, I'm somewhere on the EDS slash HSD spectrum, depending on which, which labels you're looking at, um, and have fought with low vitamin D my whole life. Uh, at one point, just a couple years ago, I switched doctors and she did a test and we had done it for a couple years and it was 12. <laughs> <laughs> yes, one, two. Um, so I, I have seen with my hypermobile dancers, um, you know, dancers are very prone to have low D. Everybody talks about that now, which I'm so grateful for. But especially in my hypermobile dancers, I've seen without any research to back it up that they have a harder time maintaining that. I don't know, Linda, if it's uh, people with people who are on the spectrum have a harder time absorbing minerals in general. Have you seen anything like that, Linda? That's a good question. There are definitely gut issues that lead to, mm. um, you know, more difficulty with uh, absorbing. Definitely gut function is impaired in a lot of people that are on the spectrum, which I think is a good way to think of it. And of course, mm. when you say on the spectrum, a lot of people think the autism spectrum, but now we're talking the hypermobility <laughs> spectrum. Hypermobility. Which, yeah. Yeah. Because um, of course, everything we talk about is hypermobility. So, so yes, I think that's definitely the case. There's also some genetic markers that we can look at that have to do with vitamin D um, uh, incorporation and how well we work with vitamin D. And so there also could be genetic differences as well. So, and that's Mm -hmm. of course a a very rapidly evolving field. So it's a fascinating 
to look at um, that pertains specifically to SNP testing, which is single nucleotide polymorphisms. So anyone that's had, you know, like 23andMe or some of those things done, and then you can actually pay a little bit of extra money to have them look at some of these SNPs. So it's, there's a lot of great information. So stay tuned for a lot of that stuff too. <laughs> yes, uh. absolutely. So, so you've got hypermobility, you have osteoporosis, you're young, they've told you start taking drugs. Um, <laughs> and you are not finding at the time a lot of compelling research that says don't take drugs, do exercise, right? Basically. So what made you exercise like what what was it is that just because that's what you knew and that's what you felt good doing what what made you seek jeff out and and start building that well that's the thing that's interesting is that there was evidence to show that exercise can improve your bone density it's just for, for various reasons the medical community was hesitant to adapt it and to adopt it uh i would say the the reasoning as far as i can tell is that it was limited in terms of you know needing longitudinal studies, but there there was there was the famous Erlangen study uh, that had looked at this. So there 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 was research, and I think it was compelling research. But I think you needed more. You needed greater systematic reviews. You needed more meta analyses uh, to to be able to make the case for it. But there definitely was evidence, and so I looked at that evidence and I said, well, of course. And then also. We already know from Wolf's Law that bone's going to respond to outside forces so that you can strengthen bone by loading it. So it, to me, it was a no-brainer also just by the fact that I also was in the field. And something that I think is interesting, just going back to the history, in my personal history, that I think may have been a savior for me with my hypermobility is that I had started ice skating when I was three. So pretty much as soon as I could walk, I was ice skating. And as you probably know, with ice skating, there's a lot of load and force that's mm -hmm. way more, I would say, because you have velocity that mm -hmm. is bounded in addition to gravity and height, uh, that that you get more impact going through your bones. I haven't, I've not looked at any research done on ice skaters, but I do believe that that helped my connective tissue system. Mm. Uh, the fact that I had had so much force generated when I was younger prior to even dancing. So I think that actually strengthened my joints more than I would have without that. But I already knew all of the, these basic facts just about weight bearing, about resistance and impact, not to the extent that I then started studying, but these were already part of my, my, my life to begin mm -hmm. with. But I had not been very intensely involved in progressive resistance uh, weight training. So high intensity loading, um, as well as velocity training. So I had, I had worked out, but I had not been that diligent about it. I had done some throughout my 20s, though. I'd gone to the gym, but I'd never had officially a trainer. And so mm. that made me think, all right, well, I'm going to take this next path. Mm -hmm. Well, and I remember watching you as you went through the diagnosis and then as you did your research and then um, as you started working with, with Jeff. And I remember seeing a, a clear difference in you physically as you seemed to take, as you took on muscle for sure, but you also inhabited your body in a different way and, and looked stronger, looked more, um, I don't want to say aggressive, but assertive 
physically in your frame. So I love that it did something for you, but then you also thought that you wanted to take that and do something for other people and kind of move that on. So I, we know that it was your struggle through all of this, like your personal struggle that sort of led you to, to develop Buff Bones. Um, and what made you feel like the world needs this program? And I'm going to put it out there. I really didn't. That's the funny part. <laughs> Somebody else told me they did. So I initially had just created this workshop for osteoporosis as I was doing all this research about it. And I thought, wow, let me share some of this information, which coincided at the same time as I was creating a workshop on hypermobility. So I was, I was simultaneously researching these two very different diagnoses. And at the time also, this was when it was, it was the benign joint hypermobility syndrome. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking at the time, well, I guess it's benign because it's not affecting, affecting my organs, but darn, this sure doesn't feel benign to me. <laughs> yeah. So I was simultaneously looking at both, uh, both pathologies, if you will. And I had created this workshop and at the, I guess probably about two years after I'd created the workshop, I was invited by Hatherley Medical Education to create a continuing education lesson and paper for exercise professionals about osteoporosis. So they were building out this whole other arm for exercise professionals in addition to their whole CME division for nurses and physicians. Mm -hmm. And I did a whole literature review, basically. That's how I started really delving into all the literature that was there, looking at all the evidence that was out there. And that's where I really started seeing what was available and what was being stated about exercise. And there, it was bountiful, <laughs> despite what people were thinking, there was plenty out there. And even if you look now, you'll see all sorts of citations in current literature that references things prior to 2004, even prior to 2002. But it was a matter, I think, of the word not spreading and reaching the ears that I think it needed to, to reach. So then uh, probably about a year or so afterwards, after I'd done that, one of my colleagues who'd taken my osteoporosis workshop said, why don't you put together a whole program that is not just about all the science and the bone metabolism and about the medications and nutrition and movement, but why don't you take the movement part and actually create a whole program for it? And at first I thought, well, why does anybody need that? <laughs> I said, I'm just giving you the tools to do it yourself. She's like, mm, people actually want you to implement something. So that's how it came about. And it became actually a whole methodology and a, and a system itself that follows these certain protocols that follows essentially my belief of how you approach the body that comes essentially from my hypermobile mind or my, my, my attitude toward the way I treat my own body with hypermobility and that the way I, I worked with every single client. And so I took that approach and put it into this system for bone health and it, it works magically. <laughs> so who is your target audience for this? Is it people who've already been diagnosed with osteoporosis, people who just want a good workout? Like where, where do the benefits come from or for well, whom do the benefits come? It's really evolved actually much more than what my initial intention was. My intention initially was to help people with osteoporosis, to help people prevent osteoporosis, but also the part of the mission statement was to help future generations <laughs> and to spread the word about this epidemic 
that is growing and statistically the numbers were showing that future generations were going to even have larger uh, experiences and greater experiences of osteoporosis than already existed. So I was looking at it from a, a pretty large standpoint, but the actual program of the, the buff bone system itself was initially really just designed targeting people that were early postmenopausal women who were far more capable of doing many different types of movements, getting up and down from the ground, and more capable than doing simple seated exercises with weights in their hands. Mm -hmm. And that's really all that there was. There was a huge gap that I felt a need to fill that was for these women who are, say, 40s to 60s that are, and now, you know, things have changed. My mom is 74 and she's part of that and she still gets up and down from the ground and she's part of this, this demographic that can do, that, that is not elderly, that is not, quote, what you think of as the senior or fragile uh, mm -hmm. population. And yet these people don't want to be doing boot camps. They don't have the same needs. They're not trying to flatten their stomach. They need to be functional and they need to be strong. But we're, we're doing them a disservice by saying, well, you either can go and do burpees or you can do your exercises where you sit down and you tap your toes. <laughs> so I realize there's, there's, there's a huge population that is being underserved. Mm -hmm. And I actually, even though... Age-wise, chronologically, I didn't fit into that. I did in terms of what my body needed to be doing. So I did. I created a system that felt good on my body. <laughs> I was my guinea pig to test it, but then I tested it on a number of people and found that that it it, it served people very well, and the results we were getting were were pretty outstanding. And so it was. It's become something. that's not just osteoporosis. So it's safe for anybody with osteoporosis and it's the system is designed with bone loading approaches mm -hmm. and yet it also integrates so much more with uh, considerations of fascia research and also how we can release restrictions in the body and then build it from there once you've removed those restrictions so that then we build in the strength and how we bring in the mobility, the coordination, the a huge component that I don't talk about in, with the public is motor control. So there's uh -huh. a lot that is built upon motor control in this. It's just the general public probably isn't as interested to hear <laughs> about the sequencing uh, as it comes into play for that. But as a result, it's been great for people with osteoporosis, or excuse me, with, for people with osteoarthritis as well. And people... Mm neck pain and people with shoulder pain, back pain, hip pain, and especially the hypermobile folks, because what we're doing is we're releasing the areas where there's the fascial challenges so we can restore the gliding. And then you start to change the sensation. We change the proprioceptive feedback and then we bring it all together. And then at the end is when we bring in some of the loading with from outside forces. And then the body knows how to respond and it really integrates it as a whole. So your hypermobility did not feel like it was being challenged while you were starting to do your strength training and everything. The, the work that you were doing actually felt good for your hypermobility and felt like it was helping you kind of rein it in and get control over it. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes, although I still had to do it my way. <laughs> 
essentially. And that was one of the, the beautiful things that Jeff and I created together was this technique, so to speak, of hands-on work because I definitely needed the additional load and I definitely needed the additional resistance. I mean, that made mm-hmm. such a difference for my body. But for me to do seated rows and lat pulls where my shoulder's not fully connected, I, I can feel it's not congruent, It, I wouldn't feel it. In, I felt nothing in my posterior delt ever mm-hmm. until I worked with him and basically told him where I needed his hands to give me the feedback so that I could get the joint congruent and I could get the joint stability. And then I could get the muscular activation where it needed to. But until Mm. we did it that way, it still wasn't enough for me. So I guess my answer is that weight training has been a game changer for me. But still Mm -hmm. today, the joints are so lax that I still need the hands-on assistance that makes the difference so that I can actually get the proper loading forces and the proper activation where it needs to be. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Very, very interesting. And I do, um, I think that this is a great uh, concept because we we talked about medications and the challenges with that. I think it's important to remember that when it comes to writing a prescription, which is basically, you know, when we give a plan to somebody, we are giving them, you know, uh, we're giving them a plan, we're writing them a prescription, writing a prescription for exercise in the general sense is so much less useful than saying this is a specific program that you can do. And if we don't make it specific, then people don't follow through. Even when we do make Mm -hmm. it specific, it's easier to pop a pill or, you know, I mean, they obviously came up with things that you could have IV once every, I think year or whatever, whatever, whatever it is. So I think that that's the other important thing that, um, when it comes to writing that prescription, there's vast differences in terms of, you know, I hate, I know some people hate this word, but compliance. So I think it's great for pe- when people understand the why, I think they're much more likely to actually do the, um, the how. And for you, you, under, you really understood it at a deeper level. So you were really motivated to, to actually follow through, right, with, with the exercise and everything. It's true. Yeah. And I, think you, I, I hear you on the, the compliance term. But I think you're so right about that, that interestingly, when I had, when I was in New York in my practice, I had a prominent sports medicine physician who would refer patients to me and two interesting things about that. Every single one of them that was referred to me, most every single one of them, the diagnosis was there's nothing wrong with them. They just need to strengthen. And almost every one of those people that I worked with that came under those circumstances past the, 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 the baiting or the biting scoring. <laughs> so usually the situation was that there was hype, underlying hypermobility that was going mm. on. And that's what we were really working with, getting them stronger, incorporating again some of the strength training concepts along with Pilates and other movement modalities. But the other thing that's interesting is that many of the people who came to me were not compliant even with that when they were told by a physician that they had to come. It was the ones who actually stuck around more often than not were the ones who had found me on their own because Mm. it was their own volition, it was their own determination, not being told by, by an outside source that this is something you need to do. They had their own internal motivation that they were willing to do whatever they needed to do to get themselves out of pain 
Or for instance, if it's an osteoporosis scenario, it's that the people who are, who are searching for me find me through a referral or through the internet because they are so determined, they are going to take charge of their health. Mm-hmm. And that's really the, the biggest factor, I think, of that whole compliance idea. Mm-hmm. And with my trainer, I would have him help me stabilize the joint in order to produce force. Uh-huh. Because without that, I wouldn't get the force production directly through the joint in the way that I needed to. So if we start thinking about the pathomechanics here, it become, to me, it just becomes really evident that with those who are hypermobile, you're not going to have the exact same force production, distribution, and transmission through a joint as ideally you would with, with the, the standard person or the standard patient. So that, to me stands out as possibly the number one component. But I also think in in terms of of bone density um, and therefore possibly with vulnerability to fracture. But the other part that stands out to me is that there's the the collagen makeup and that, that actual component of what is comprising the bone because most people always just think of bone as a skeleton, or they think of it as hard and stiff and calcium, forgetting about the collagenous component that gives it the resiliency. So that a strong bone is, I like to say that a strong bone is resilient. It's not that I like to say. <laughs> a strong bone is resilient. I like to say that one of the goals that I'm having with buff bones is to make strong bodies that are resilient. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that it's about strong bones, especially because with buff bones, we're not getting, technically, we're not getting enough loading force into the bones to truly make a big impact on osteogenesis and and bone growth, right? And and, uh, changes in bone density. Although clinically I've seen it, but technically we shouldn't really be. It's that we're preparing the body to then go do the other components of uh, high intensity progressive resistance training, velocity, Mm -hmm. these other things that evidence has shown on very high levels, even up at 85% of your one rep max, you can be you can be in, in increasing your bone density in ways that they previously did not believe was possible. So I, I first of all believe that buff bones is part of a bigger system. It's not everything, but at the same time, it's also the idea that you're you're loading the bones, but you're also having to acknowledge that there's the chemical makeup and then there's the collagenous component. And so if there's a deficit or some kind of impairment in the collagen in people with, say, EDS, maybe with uh, hypermobility spectrum disorders, then that makes sense that also the collagen that's the component of the bone component or the bone makeup might be altered as well. And perhaps that it responds differently in its genetic (laughs) aspects or even in the genotype, right? So I think that... It, it makes total sense to me. But the one thing I also want to quote you on, Linda, <laughs> is I was listening to one of your past podcasts and you said Uh-oh. something I love, which is that the exact label is not, and you're talking about hypermobility uh, disorders and spectrums, that, that the exact label is not as important as the symptoms. Mm-hmm. And I love yes. that because I think that's a big factor as well when we're talking about osteoporosis. People freak out that they've been diagnosed with osteoporosis. Mm-hmm. It's not the same as being diagnosed with cancer. If you do nothing with cancer, then we know what, what can happen. 
I'm not saying you could, you should just do nothing with osteoporosis, but osteoporosis is never a cause of death. It's pneumonia or blood clots that it can lead to from a fracture, especially in the elderly, that, mm -hmm. that, that is the relationship to mortality. And so people in the health kit, the healthcare system is so concerned about osteoporosis with the elderly population because of that relationship to mortality because of blood clots or pneumonia after you fracture a rib or fracture a hip and you're immobilized. But osteoporosis itself is not going to, quote, kill you. And many people live very, very long, healthy lives with osteoporosis and never even fracture. And yet, and there's also another component, which is that osteoporosis was originally supposed to be diagnosed, the, the World Health Organization, let me rephrase that, Originally, the World Health Organization created, created its classification of osteoporosis based on low bone density as well as changes in an inability of the bone to self-repair itself, so changes mm. in architecture. Mm. But for some reason, we're not looking at the secondary portion of that classification. We just look at low bone density. So as my original endocrinologist said to me, you are tiny, you are five feet tall, and you weigh very little. I certainly weigh more than 82 pounds now, but look at the size of your wrists. You're not gonna have much mass there. You are automatically going to pre predispose to having low bone mass because you have little bone mass. And so I think we have to keep that in mind. I think that plays out for dancers, certainly, as well, mm. that they're gonna be small boned. Ballet dancers are, are generally small boned and they're going to probably be predisposed to a classification even of osteoporosis based on having low bone mass. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to fracture. And I think that's a, an important thing that we all have to keep in mind for everybody that it has to be considered your bone mass, but let's, let's be careful with our labels as well. That, that makes sense. And, and have you found a difference in how people that are hypermobile progress through the buff bones course or how they respond to exercise as compared to people that are not hypermobile? It's a really interesting question. I have not done enough of a clinical analysis <laughs> to identify, but I would like to. I can tell you that, well, I think they actually respond differently. So here's the thing. I think that those who are hypermobile respond well because the we're talking about usually women who are postmenopausal who are coming to our, our classes or who are coming to me as clients um, because of osteoporosis. Not always, I have some premenopausal. But if we look at that subset, then I would say we generally know that with hypermobility, most people tend to become a little bit stiffer as they get older. So especially as the, the Biden scoring has, has shifted that uh, at certain ages it, it lowers with their scoring. I think it's at four is the number of their scoring after age 50 and five is, is, is uh, the number of joints that have to be classified prior to that, that people are getting stiffer. As they're getting stiffer, they're also having more of the fascial restrictions and the tightening that is occurring also trigger points and such. So I think that the release work that occurs early on in the program benefits them and the motor control benefits them so that then when they add the load on later and they're doing 
uh, more full body integration, it, it makes sense in their bodies, not necessarily in their heads cerebrally, but their bodies automatically mm-hmm. are saying, Ooh, okay, wait, I'm getting this. I'm, I'm starting to congeal. Um, I would say that those who are not hypermobile are still benefiting from the stretch components and the fascial release work that they're having issues with regardless because they're just stiff and tight. Um, so I don't know that I'd say there's that much of a difference because I do find that both benefit from it. But maybe it's, it's they benefit in different ways. So, so how did you discover also things like nutrition and other forms of intervention? Um, how did you find experts to help you with that? Because we know that exercise is a hugely important component, but there's other factors that are important as well in terms of treating, you know, for bone health. Well, the answer is that I'm still in the process. (laughs) (laughs) I've worked with various nutritionists and I have, uh, I've also had colleagues in the field that I've referred to. It can be an interesting topic though, because that is one also that is, is constantly shifting and constantly changing. And so the discussion about vitamin K now is now the new vitamin Mm -hmm. D. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I've talked about that. Yes, we have. (laughs) And I'm fascinated with with vitamin K. And yet I also don't talk about it much myself because people like my father, who was on Coumadin for much of his life, it would have been totally contraindicated for. And so I never without it's a, it's out of my scope and B I'm not doing a full medical, uh, intake to to be qualified to tell people you know whether they should be taking certain vitamins or not um but i do find it challenging because sometimes people come back to me after i've referred them to a a a nutritionist where they appreciate what the person said or they don't appreciate what the person said or they don't like the path that that person took person took them on, on, or maybe it was that they had to go into so many supplements. Uh, it, it's a, I find it to be a really tricky road, partly because there's differing beliefs as well. So, mm-hmm. and some of those beliefs are evidence-based and some of them are not evidence-based. And mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not always so thrilled with some of the things that I see that are evidence-based because I feel that they do overlook other components. But then the ones that are less evidence-based, you want to be careful of what you're aligning yourself with. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's there there are things that seem to have some evidence, but it's not enough to, to warrant um, physicians backing it or certain standard physicians backing what they're saying. So it, it, in some ways it parallels what I find in the exercise world that sometimes maybe you're just ahead of the curve, right? Maybe as a nutritionist Mm -hmm. or as a movement professional, the reason that there's no evidence is that it just hasn't been shown yet. But at the same time, you don't want to be a whack job. (laughs) You you want to be out there purporting stuff that is valid. So I find it's a really, it's a really tough balance. Yeah, definitely. And it's funny, I didn't even make the association until, until you just were answering this question between something that was happening in, in our household recently. Um, my husband had a stress fracture 
and nobody had advised him about vitamin D or any other. I mean, they just said, said don't, don't, they put him on crutches and, right. um, you know, and he had some complications with that. And um, yeah. And so, and no one had discussed diet or anything again, that's time consuming. And yeah, you're right. It's, it's challenging. Are you an early adapter? Are you a late adapter? Are you somewhere in the middle? And to me, it's all about the risk. So you're right. For someone like your dad who was on Coumadin, then obviously eating a lot of dark leafy greens, which are high in the K vitamins, you know, is, is dangerous because then you're going to um, negate the effects of the Coumadin. But otherwise, a lot of the nutritional type advice um, is stuff that you can be an earlier adapter on because the risks are, are less. Um, but it can be really challenging to find somebody that has the, the expertise and, um, and can provide that additional information because I really, I really do feel like no matter how great um, you know, the pill or supplement is that you, know, you still need a good quality diet. It's not going to mm -hmm. make up completely for you know a, a poor diet or other things like smoking, right? So we, I mean, you know, in terms of bone health, smoking is definitely not something that's that's beneficial. Yeah. Um, so, which which of course dancers, at least I don't know. I I know the other day I tried to look for a more recent study and I couldn't find one. I don't know if either of you two ladies know anything about more recent statistics with smoking and dancers. It used to be I know a really common thing because of weight probably, but mm -hmm. um, is that still the case, do you think, or is that something that's really shifted? I don't see it as much now, and I, I work mostly with pre-professionals, but even with the professionals I work with, um, none of them smoke, and they don't talk about that. I encounter a few dancers who smoke. I, I know one male dancer who smokes, and he um, he works as a freelance dancer, and so I've I've actually heard a few of his dance partners say, oh, he smokes and they can kind of tell. And, and, and I think that it's changed. I think the, the, it's become more of a stigma than um, a stimulant. Um, I know when I was dancing, there were so many dancers that said, you know, my lunch is a tab and a cigarette. Right. Right. <laughs> Both of which are not good for bone density. Right. Um, but that was just kind of the way it was. But I think it's a lot different now. And hopefully everybody listening knows you shouldn't smoke, right? For so many different reasons. But for the purposes of this conversation, you shouldn't smoke because of bone density issues, right? So. Right, right, right. <laughs> That's our little and PSA. I, and I'm sorry that I digress. Um, <laughs> no, no. So, so <laughs> I got off, on, I got off on, the, on the the stress fracture thing, which of course is not, you know, that, that's just bone health in general. And, and as you pointed out, Rebecca, very early on, um, the bone, we, I think so many people think of bone as being static and it's not, mm -hmm. right? It's mm -hmm. how fast are we building bone and how fast are we breaking down bone? Because just like every other tissue in our body, we're constantly growing cells and destroying cells. So mm -hmm. it's a question of the balance of those two. And um, okay. Well, but, but the digression about... Um, stress fracture is actually, I think, really germane to the conversation because so many of my dancers get stress fractures mm -hmm. or they get stress reactions in their feet and in their shins. And we have to talk through what's causing this, right? And look at the exercises they're doing or not doing. But then it's also a great time to say, have you been to your doctor? Say to the parents, have you, has your kid ever had blood work done? Have you looked at vitamin D? You know, and let's examine your diet. And the dancers who um, commit to a healthier diet and commit to um, trying to use nutrition as well, 
we'll see hopefully that they don't get more stress fractures and also recover faster than if someone just said, Hey, here's a boot, sit in that for six weeks and don't do anything else, you know? So just like osteoporosis, dancers deal with stress fractures and the way that you deal with it will greatly affect the outcome, right? Just like with osteoporosis, if you sit on the couch, you will have different results than if you start moving and try to do a system like buff bones. If dancers sit on the couch while they're stress fractured, they will have different results than if they move with a doctor's supervision and, and look at their nutrition. Well, there's two, two parts that are really interesting about that is that the stress fracture actually, stress fracture could actually be a sign of mm -hmm. osteoporosis. Mm -hmm. And even outside the dancer population, uh, when somebody premenopausal gets a fracture that seems unusual, be, maybe a stress fracture, but also just any kind of fracture, like somebody uh, that I know that was skiing, she, she, was, uh, she was skiing and she fell and she fractured her arm. And the doctor wisely said, you know, let's do a DEXA, let's do a bone density scan. And sure enough, it came back as osteoporosis. And it wasn't the first of the fractures that she had. Um, mm. The other interesting thing that you mentioned, Jen, and I think is something that Linda as a physician would be intriguing for you is that how often have we had, let's maybe outside of the dancer population, how often have we had clients who have experienced a fracture from something and, and let's not talk about, well, maybe it could even be the spine, but let's say you fracture uh, in your ankle or a wrist, right? Mm -hmm. Being the third most common site for postmenopausal women due to osteoporosis. And they're told by their physician, well, you're, you're supposed to not do any exercise for six to eight weeks. And I'm like, well, what does your wrist have to do with all the ankle work that we're doing that's going to help right. balance? <laughs> right. And so, like, this piecemeal approach, the reason I say different for dancers is that as a dancer, you know, this idea that you have to be bed res bedridden or inactive for six to eight weeks is is hell for the mm -hmm. average person you might take it as as a, a, a <laughs> so you know your your clients that are dancers are probably much more eager to to say Jen well give me something I can do right. whereas I find that in my non-dancer population it's trying to convince them that no you really should have this conversation with your physician to ask them that this mm -hmm. is not ticket to inactivity <laughs> mm -hmm. are there things that you know can we get permission to do some other things because i also i want the clearance of the physician right and the difference between what we provide in terms of written instructions and versus verbal and how clear we are and what people actually can recall because it's also possible that the doctor didn't say do nothing for six weeks, but they interpreted it that way because that's right. what they want to hear, you know, mm -hmm. or, um, or because the, because the physician didn't say, well, because your wrist is broken, you, you know, need to have that immobilized, but you still can do a whole bunch of other things, including walking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, so I just, that came to mind as you were talking about that. And speaking of seeing a doctor, um, Rebecca, if you're working with someone and maybe they came to you independently, as you, as you mentioned, they didn't come to you because a doctor suggested that they come to you, but, but you're working with them independently and um, you're thinking maybe they should see a, a physician or somebody about their bone density issues. At what point do you encourage them to do that? Well, the reason they've come to me for their bones though, and would, well, let's put it this way. 
the reason that somebody would have come to me for their bones was because they got a diagnosis. And the oh. only way they would have gotten the diagnosis is because, because they saw the doctor. Okay. So they, they would have come to me because of the medical side to begin with. Sure. However, I still, even in those cases, in, I still always tell them, all right, you got this diagnosis. But one of the first things you do, well, the first question they always ask me is, should I take medication? <laughs> the first thing I always tell them is that I'm not going to give you an answer on that. Right. <laughs> but the second thing I then tell them is in order to make a decision on that, which is a decision between you and your family and your doctor, you need to get more information. And so I tell them that they want them to see an endocrinologist or a rheumatologist so that they can get the proper blood workup and identify, is there any other underlying cause? Do you have uh, a thyroid disorder? Are you hyperparathyroid perhaps? I had a client where that was the case. She went and got her parathyroid tested and it turned out it was hyperactive, which was leading to unusual bone breakdown because that's what regulates the osteoclast activity. Mm -hmm. So by that, she was able to control her osteoporosis by controlling the parathyroid. So it was actually a really wonderful thing that she discovered some other underlying condition. And that often is the case with osteoporosis too, that it's really just an indicator of something else that is going on uh, that erroneously with the, and, and you're having this homeostatic effect in the body because mm -hmm. there's something else that's not functioning properly. Mm -hmm. So that's just not the case. And sometimes it's just idiopathic osteoporosis where we just don't know why this is happening. Uh, and that's sometimes the case for younger people as well. But even now, after all this discussion, it makes me wonder, well, that whole idiopathic thing, maybe there's something going on with a connective tissue disorder that we thought it's just unknown origin, but there is something that is, is there. Um, but I, I do send uh, clients or patient referrals right back to another specialist to at least rule out any other conditions that might be mm -hmm. the cause of unusual bone breakdown. Mm -hmm. And then we take it from there. Okay. So, so, sorry. So let me follow up with that then. So if you were still doing a private practice because you have, you know, you're still a Pilates teacher and you work with some non, um, osteoporosis clients. Um, is there a client that you might work with that wasn't sent from a doctor or uh, a friend that you run into of your mother's or something like that? What are some things that might lead you to tell someone like that, an old friend from dance school, hey, maybe you should go get your bone density checked out? Definitely. Um, a couple things, the, the signs and symptoms, uh, including if they have, well, first of all, if they've experienced one or more fractures, and what we call a fragility fracture, meaning a fracture that is not because you are standing on a chair changing a light bulb and fell off, but uh, a fracture that has occurred from standing height or from a seated height uh, that should not be occurring in normal healthy bone. So if you've had one or more fragility fractures, if uh, you have lost height, and uh, if there is a clear sign of kyphosis or um, excess curvature, roundedness in the spine, um, sometimes, so, so a symptom could of, of say a, a fracture, a vertebral fracture of the spine could be pain, but that can be so misinterpreted because the pain could be from anything. 
but also likewise that loss of height could be from just degenerative disc disease as mm -hmm. many get when they get older but um, certainly the uh, you, but if somebody has lost height if they have if they are a certain age if uh, if they have uh, experienced any fractures to begin with that's a, a, a deal breaker for me to say you, you should go get your DEXA checked um, and again I'm talking about not just a, a stress fracture in the foot, although that could be it, but also if they've if they fell and fractured an ankle or if they fell and fractured their wrist, um, and I would say also you know the the guidelines, the medical guidelines have shifted considerably in the last decade as well, from saying over sixty five women over sixty five should be getting a DEXA to then starting to depending, it's altered uh, on different guidelines. So some have stated, well, if you have had a DEXA and it's fine, then you do not need to get another one for 10 years. And then mm -hmm. the question becomes, well, 10 years is a really long time. Mm -hmm. and at what point, what age did you get the first DEXA? Because you lose uh, five to 7%, excuse me, you lose up to 20% of your bone mass in the first five to seven years after menopause. So, you know, I also look at that when I'm when I'm talking to somebody. All right, well, what is their age right now? Are they in that that large bone loss period immediately after after menopause, or are they far out where it's probably leveled off, where they're probably not losing so much in such a dramatic fashion? So, I do tell people to get a DEXA though if they've experienced a fracture, and I. I'm a proponent of the DEXA. Some people are not. Um, I do believe in at least having a baseline measurement because when people come to me and they are showing me one single DEXA, I'm like, okay, well, that's fine. I don't know if the reason your bone density is low is because it's just low to begin with. What's really helpful is that now if I have two, I can compare one to another. Now I can see, mm -hmm. are you low or are you low and you're dropping from the last time you had your DEXA? So I'm a proponent of it and an advocate of it to at least have some kind of, of measurement and have a baseline. Not to, it's not the end all be all. And I also use the FRAX score. I, I have them use the FRAX score, which is another measurement. It's an algorithm basically that was um, developed by the, I think the University of Sheffield in the UK, where it looks at all these different factors from your age, your bone density, or your, your last T-score, um, DEXA from your hip, um, secondary osteoporosis, history of smoking, history of glucocorticosteroids, like if you're on prednisone at some point, um, especially those like with Crohn's or colitis, and alcohol units per day. And I was just doing this with a client the other day, going through it with her so that she could ask her doctor about it, who wants her to go on medication. I was like, that's your decision, but talk to your doctor about the FRAX because it gives you a 10-year probability fracture risk. Well, guess what's missing from this algorithm? Have you ever exercised? Do you have an exercise history? How's yeah. your balance, right? So to me, there's again a fault in the system because I really have a lot of trouble believing that your, your dancer uh, or your say say your patient or client who is now 60 years old 
but either A, was a professional dancer, or B, just was an avid mover and and did quite a bit of movement training throughout her life and has yeah. excellent balance, has the exact same fracture risk of, of the other patient, who has been sedentary most of her life, whose balance testing or any kind of balance assessment would come out very poorly. Do you really do they have the exact same probability of fracture? Well, according to this algorithm, yes, they do. Mm. Again, that's so interesting in our system, I think. Mm-hmm. That is very interesting. Went off on a, a tangent, but <laughs> there are so many different things that I think can be considered. Mm-hmm. It also comes into play with the work that, that you do, Jen, specifically with your, your training, whether they are a dancer or not, that even if they have osteoporosis, that balance training and all the proprioceptive work will mm-hmm. make a difference in their fall reduction. I mean, evidence mm-hmm. totally shows that. And evidence also shows that if you fall less, you are less likely to fracture. To fracture. Less likely to fracture. Isn't that the goal of all this to begin with? <laughs> Preach. Yeah. <laughs> And um, Rebecca, we know that you've presented to uh, doctors and hospitals around the world. And how has the medical community reacted in general to your approach? And how have you pulled together so much research to um, inform your system? Wow. (laughs) Several questions. I'll start with the last one, which is, I mean, that initial literature review back in, I think it was 2008. Mm -hmm really the genesis of everything for above bones and then i just i look at and i I update our our instructor training manual every year as well with the with the latest research studies that um, i should mention that we have an instructor training program a certification for exercise professionals so i update that uh yearly with the the latest research and I, I look at it as well just to see, um, you know, obviously there's limitations to how much you can constantly see everything that's, that's coming out. But in terms of the medical world, you know, it's, it's an interesting one because I think there are some in the medical world who really don't care because what they're looking at is just purely the evidence that is out there. And there mm-hmm. is evidence out there especially in the last uh, five years, there's, some, there's a growing body of evidence on high-intensity progressive resistance training, especially, and adding in some impact as well that is, is having some really, uh, really promising results. So either they don't want to see it or they do acknowledge it and they do encourage that. But the challenge becomes so many in that same population also have arthritis. So they get concerned about how are we going to do heavy loading for people that already have pain in their joints? Isn't it going to add more compression? And part of the answer to that is, well, it depends on how you do it. And that's where buff bones comes in, is that we really prepare the, the bones and the joints to be smart so that you can, you can move in a smart, intense, intelligent fashion so that you can get those extra forces in so that the body does know how to absorb and transmit those loads. The other answer is that sometimes physicians will say, well, actually, we love this idea, right? They're not concerned about it. So it just, I I think it depends. I remember I was presenting at uh, an international osteoporosis conference uh, once, and I was presenting uh, the latest research 
for what was going on with exercise. And there was a, a physician who was uh, moderating this who really questioned what I was saying. And I'm saying, this is not my, my beliefs. I'm telling you what the research is showing right now. This mm -hmm. is the research. Who was, so sometimes you have the physicians questioning it because it just doesn't seem possible. Um, sometimes you have physicians who are embracing it but are still going to say, yes, but you need medication. And I think maybe there are some physicians that might say, well, we will we'll be able to hold off. I know that my mom's physician has, has honored her request in the last couple of years to hold off on one of the medications so that she can, she can see what the weight training will do. And in fact, the weight training did increase her bone density. Um, now, granted, that was prior to COVID and her having COVID and, and every, all the gyms closing down. Right. <laughs> so it happens now. And I actually do think this is a, a, a frightening time for the osteoporosis. Mm -hmm with COVID because mm -hmm. so many people who were active and going to gyms are no longer doing that. Mm -hmm. And that's why I've been trying to bring in more and created the online studio in the meantime so that people have an option of something they can do at home. Um, I'd say it just depends on the physicians and that's why I am so happy to know physicians such as yourself, Linda, who come from a background of movement. And this is one of the things that I've that, that has really become very clear to me in the past couple of years, that the greatest advocates that I'm going to have for this work are physicians who understand personally the importance of movement and exercise for themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because I've realized that I can talk till I'm blue in the face to a physician who I, I can think of plenty that I think are wonderful human beings, but the idea of actually going to a gym or the idea of, of taking a movement class <laughs> would make them laugh. They like their sedentary lifestyle and that's fine, but that's not going to be my advocate because they don't believe it for themselves. Why would they possibly advocate that for their patients? So the, my, my alliance is going to be with physicians who believe in movement because they understand it and they embrace it themselves. Mm -hmm. And or maybe they haven't, but they've seen the effects that it can have on their wife or their husband or their parent. And then that becomes the game changer that makes them a convert to uh, the gospel that the three of us are trying to spread. <laughs> and that's the ironic thing. If you could take all the benefits of exercise and put them into a pill, it would be the best selling pill ever, you know, but um, yeah, it's, it is very interesting. And there is data actually in osteo, um, osteoarthritis as well, that muscle strengthening improves pain and improves function. And it makes sense, <clears throat> excuse me, it, it can be challenging to figure out what kind of exercises that person can do, but, but the muscle protects the joint. So it's not, it's not like you have to, you don't choose either or, right? It's, so it, it is kind of ironic, but um, as, <laughs> as Jen and I have figured out, we, we, we just keep converting the easier to, to convert. And, you know, the people who are going to be at the very tail end, we, we don't worry about, about them quite yet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, it, I'm always surprised at how many of our conversations, how many of our podcasts come back to the basics 
of nutrition and exercise and sleep. I remember it was Dr. Ruhoy, I think, right? We were talking to a neurologist. Um, we were talking about how to heal the brain holistically. And, and she listed out I, these three things. And those three things, she was like, these are the three non-negotiables I work on. And they were get better sleep, mm-hmm. clean up your gut, like watch what you eat and how you exercise or how you diet, like heal that and get exercise. I mean, every single person that we talk to, every expert in their field, one of those three things at least is talked about as this is what you got to do. And it feels so silly that we keep saying this over and over again, <laughs> diet, <laughs> exercise, and sleep. There's, and you know, yeah. I mean, well, that's what it is. I find this is, I've been doing a lot of thinking lately this year about hurdles, <laughs> so, <laughs> everybody, and one of the things that comes to me exactly about what you're referring to is how can we change the mindset? How do we change this paradigm so that it's not a, well, I have to change my diet. I have to get more right. sleep. I have right. to exercise. And that's been part of what I've been working on with the, with the, the bites program that I have mm-hmm. of how it's, it's just a five minute a day subscription. What is mm-hmm. the least amount of time to let you realize that it's not something you have to do, that actually brushing your teeth doesn't just keep your cavities away. Brushing your teeth actually makes your breath smell better, right? Like right. five minutes a day of exercise doesn't just um, make you adhere to what you're supposed to do from your doctor to uh, keep your your joints uh, mobile. It's that wow, I actually feel better. Wow, my my attitude is more positive. Wow, I can actually more easily tackle the every other component of my life when I've done this. So mm-hmm. how could we possibly do that with everything? Changing all of these the this triad of sleep, movement, and and food, nutrition to things that are more joyous. So it's like, oh, no, I don't have to cook my own meal now. Ooh, I get to create right. and produce right. that I have cooked. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. Preach. It, it's all in the attitude, for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for sure. Mm-hmm. So Rebecca, we definitely know that, um, as we were just saying, for, for sure, exercise and ideally some kind of um, program where you are getting really informed advice and really being able to do the proper type of exercise to help you achieve the goal that you are looking to achieve, you know, what is really ideal for everyone. Is there any point at which you encourage a person not to exercise? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was quick. <laughs> I, I feel because Two things. I always say, do you notice that I always have two things? <laughs> I can't answer succinctly. I feel that part of it is that we, I like to use the word sometimes exercise, but just sometimes movement because right. sometimes exercise is misconstrued even by the medical community when they're saying, oh, you know, you just had surgery. You're not allowed to exercise, as we were saying, for such and such number of weeks. Well, sure, you had surgery, but maybe you can just breathe and maybe you can just move your arm. Maybe you're doing like a, a somatic type of movement or you're doing some mm-hmm. public price that is not affecting the area of concern. Um, so A, even just movement 
I, I would say, no, there's not really an instance. Now, certain types of exercise, certain types of movement, absolutely. There are times that I say it's not appropriate. But there's all, I really do believe there's always something that somebody can do. And just as we were saying before, it goes back into that mindset and it goes back into the idea of self-efficacy. That if you are told that you're not allowed to do anything, I know from my experience that has been the, some of the worst times for me emotionally when I was uh, told, oh, you know, you are on a very restricted diet. You cannot eat blah, 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 blah. Um, because we're, we're trying to assess certain things with uh, a health situation. Or when I've been told, even just the initial diagnosis of osteoporosis, you know, you are not to bend your back anymore. <laughs> Great. That feels awesome. So the idea of being told that of uh, things, just not to do things, I think creates a very negative cyclical pattern and negative mindset. Uh -huh very, very dangerous. And so I always feel that there is something that somebody can do. So I can't think of any scenario where I say no. Um, because even if you're just doing finger exercises, not that challenging. And then here you can see, you know, my, my bendy fingers. Oh, <laughs> yes. Look at that. <laughs> there's, always, there's always something that you can do and how we define it as exercise or movement might be part mm -hmm. of it. But there's always something that you can do. Now, do I say that you should just do any exercise? No. That there's very specific things and there's specific, specific things that we shouldn't do based on what might be happening in our bodies at certain times. But that's all the more reason to do the 568,000 other things that you can do. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. And I love the movement as opposed to exercise concept, because mm -hmm. if we want to be able to move, then we need to move. Right. So, um, but I think we often don't, don't think of, don't think of it in those terms. We've covered so many uh, great and interesting things. And this has been really um, educational for sure for me. And is there anything else that we didn't ask you that you wanted to be sure to cover? Hmm. Something that I think is interesting is the discussion of instability that comes up a lot in the movement world. Mm. And this might not be relevant for everything here, but the movement in Pilates world especially has become very focused on this term stability and we want to help stability and we want to fight instability when really the majority of the population doesn't need to worry about stability and instability of a joint. In your population, in your world, that is a huge focus. Uh -huh. Me personally, that's part of your world uh -huh. as a or let's say that is a huge focus, but I think we need in the movement world to stop talking about focus on joint stability. And I used to talk about it all the time too, and worries about instability because all we're doing is creating more fear when most people really don't have to worry about that. They need to move more, uh -huh. to focus more on, on mobility. Uh -huh. And even in our, maybe even in your hypermobile world, we can still talk about where you find your mobility from, that it's uh -huh. just not in your TL junction, <laughs> uh -huh. or it's not just hanging out on that Y ligament, that where are you gonna right. find 
responsibility from a different part so that we we work in this integrated fashion. Um, I've become really indoctrinated, if you will, into the world of biotensegrity and the idea of how the body is a self-sustaining structure that is inherently stable unto itself, absent, let's say, of maybe Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, hypermobile uh, condition. Mm-hmm. And that when we move and we work in a way that leverages the biotensegrity of the body, that takes on the natural compression and, and tension components that are inherently there and allows the body to work as a systematic unit where one part affects the other part, that inherent stability is automatically found. And we can start moving away from worrying about stability or instability, again, absent from the population that that you're focused on, mm-hmm. where there is very valid concerns about joint instability, but how do we stabilize certain areas, but through movement and how do we embrace all of that to move away from some of the fear-based discussion of movement that I know was a very big part of my life for a long time. Fantastic. And can you let us know uh, where can people best find you and learn more about what you're doing? So my website is, uh, the name of the brand is Buff Bones and the website is buff-bones.com. And I also have a product or a, an online studio that you can, you can find through there if you search. <laughs> we have to make it clear it's, it's called Revive. And, uh, but you can also find that if you search there on the, on the website when you're looking for the classes. And you can also just find us by on Instagram as well as Facebook. So Got Buff Bones is the name on Instagram and on Facebook, it is just buff bones and uh, the buff bites that five minute day subscription is also findable through there. (laughs) Fabulous. And we will also have links to Mm -hmm. to, uh, all of that on the website as well. So I should mention also, sorry, I forgot. Also, I have my, my own work that I do that is separate from Buff Bones, that is just my integrated movement and emphasis on biotensegrity and such, uh, is on my personal Instagram called Rebecca Rotstein. So I actually do do the things that might be also more of interest to the dancer population <laughs> through there, because I also teach a, a class every Tuesday that is for dancers and movement professionals. Mm-hmm. Oh, very good. Great. Well, we'll have to point everyone in the right direction, but we will do that through the, the show notes and the website. And um, so people can check all of that out. So, mm-hmm. well, fabulous. Well, it's been so great chatting with you today, Rebecca. And um, you all have been listening to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. Today, we've been speaking with Rebecca Rotstein, creator of the medically endorsed Buff Bones System, industry leader in Pilates, bone health, and movement education. And it's been so great to chat with you, Rebecca. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and share your knowledge. 
Thank you both for inviting me to speak with you and also just for all that you're doing for the world of dance and the world of hypermobile uh, populations and for bendy bodies. I, I wish that uh, I had known <laughs> you guys 20 years ago. <laughs> so do we. <laughs> that's, that's part of why we're doing this. We wish that we had us back 20 years ago. So we're, we're trying to do what we wish we had back then, right, Jen? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, great. Well, it's been, it's been fun. It was great seeing you, Jen. And uh, we'll catch you next time on Bendy Bodies. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility for dancers and other artistic athletes. Please leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Remember to subscribe so you won't miss future episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the Bendy Bodies YouTube channel as well. Thank you for helping us spread the word about hypermobility and associated conditions. Visit our website, www.bendybodies.org, for more information. For a limited time, you could win an autographed copy of the popular textbook, Disjointed, Navigating the Diagnosis and Management of Hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and Hypermobility Spectrum Disorders, just by sharing what you love about the Bendy Bodies podcast. On Instagram, tag us at bendy underscore bodies and on Facebook at Bendy Bodies Podcast. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the co-hosts and their guests. They do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. The thoughts and opinions do not constitute medical advice and should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. This podcast is intended for general education only and does not constitute medical advice. Your own individual situation may vary. Do not make any changes without first seeking your own individual care from your physician. We'll catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies Podcast. This episode of the Bendy Bodies Podcast was brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.